This Wellness Couch podcast proudly brought to you by the Nourish Me Organics Gut Health Gurus podcast hosted by food scientist Kribben Govinda. If you're fascinated by all things gut health, the microbiome, fermented foods, mental health, mitochondrial health and more, then search for the Nourish Me Organics Gut Health Gurus podcast on your favorite podcast app and get listening. Welcome to the Go Vita podcast where your vitality is our passion. It's time to supercharge your health and wellness to take the next step on being the best version of you. Let's get underway. Hello and welcome to the Go Vita podcast, the show dedicated to bringing you the latest and greatest wellness advice so that you can enjoy the health and vitality that you deserve. Marcus Pierce here with you, CEO of the Wellness Couch Podcast Network, and on this episode, our focus is squarely on heart health. How important is this topic? Well, think of it this way. Cardiovascular disease is the leading cause of death in Australia with over 45,000 deaths every year. That's about 125 a day for those interested in the maths. On top of that, over 6 million Aussies have high blood pressure and the stats are similar for high cholesterol. To dive deep into this topic, there is arguably no greater authority on heart health in this country than our guest today. Dr. Ross Walker has been a cardiologist for over 33 years. He's authored seven books and is a media health presenter and speaker right around the country. To help us navigate through heart disease, blood pressure, cholesterol, and all things heart health, it is a very warm welcome to Dr. Ross Walker. Dr. Ross, welcome to the podcast. It's my pleasure, Marcus. Great to talk to you, mate. Now, now where to start? It seems like we are in a real mess when it comes to heart health in Australia, but there are a number of solutions to the problems, I suppose. Can we just get clear, first of all, on the vernacular around Mm. heart disease? Because you hear of heart disease or cardiovascular disease and high and low blood pressure and high cholesterol. Can you just educate us on what constitutes heart disease? Well, let's talk about cardiovascular disease first. It's basically disease of either the heart or the the blood vessels that supply all of our organs. So the commonest cause there is heart disease where we we talk about a thing called atherosclerosis. I don't don't want to get too technical, but atherosclerosis is the progressive buildup of fat and other muck in the walls of your arteries over decades. So if you imagine a donut, The hole in the middle is where the blood's going, but all the action's happening in the wall. And as soon as your mother gives you baby food, which is full of synthetic muck, you spill bits of muck into the wall of your arteries. And over decades, this fat, it's almost like a fatty pimple. We call it a plaque. This fatty plaque builds up in the wall. Now, here's where everyone gets it wrong, Marcus. People think that what happens is cholesterol cholesterol just slowly clogs your arteries over. It's complete nonsense. As I said, it's all happening in the wall. When the fat reaches a critical mass, one day it just suddenly ruptures like a pimple bursting and all the muck goes into the channel where the blood's flowing, a clot forms, you block the artery, there's your heart attack. Now, if you've got the same process going on in the blood vessels going up to your brain, then you'll have a stroke. If you've got the same process going on the blood vessels in your legs, then you might get gangrene in your legs. But it's the same process we call atherosclerosis. And I've got to say, Everybody living in the modern world who has a cholesterol above three and a top reading systolic blood pressure above 100 will have some degree of atherosclerosis in their arteries, but we have ways of picking up who's got it worse than others. Wow. Okay. So you've already reshaped the game for a lot of people. Can you, just just before I ask you about high cholesterol, where, because there'd be six million people that will go, well, hold on a minute. That kind of completely redefines it for me. what else constitutes heart disease? Is there something out when, well, oh, I, yeah. you know, heart, Marcus, yeah. 
can I say that there's buckets of other causes of heart disease, atherosclerotic heart disease, the so-called heart attack, angina, all of those things. That's the common one. But we can also have problems with the valves in the heart. So, so people can get blockages in valves or severely leaking valves. We've all heard of that, and you might need operations for that. There's also what we call cardiomyopathy, which is a disease of the heart muscle. And that can be either a thickening of the heart muscle, it can be a weakness in the way the heart muscle pumps, or it can be a, a problem with filling in the heart. You can also get problems in the electrical system. So, for example, you've probably heard of a thing called atrial fibrillation, which is the commonest irregular heart disorder. Yeah. And that, that can lead to strokes, it can lead to impairment in heart function, and that's just because the electrics aren't working well. And there's even the covering of the heart called the pericardium, which can be inflamed or get fluid in it. So there's a lot of different things that can constitute heart disease. But the big one that we really focus on is this atherosclerotic heart disease that causes the heart attacks and the angina, the need for bypass and stenting and all of those sort of things. So many people, if they're listening to this, they're going to know someone or have experience uh, with it themselves because one in three Australians over the age of 18, do have high cholesterol. So this is why, I mean, it's 6 million people. It's a phenomenal amount of people. So I'm guessing that someone listening to this right now, it either is them or they know someone with it. it with everything that you've just said, which really redefines it, it's not just a cholesterol uh, problem. What do you recommend? Because I think a lot of people are confused in terms of where they go outside of really the medical model would just be to go on a statin for the rest of your life. Where, which is absolute nonsense. And can I say, and I don't wish to sound patronising to anybody, but 99.9999% repeater of the general public have absolutely no understanding of cholesterol, blood pressure, heart disease, how it all fits in, nor should you. It's not your job. But tragically, I would suggest to you that 99.9% of the medical profession have no idea either, which is why we're seeing this excessive prescription of statin drugs. So can I make a, a very emphatic point here, Marcus? I do not treat cholesterol, I treat risk. And here's the issue, and I, I, I give you, and I think this is best given by a few clinical examples from my own practice. I have a woman in her 50s who came to me with a cholesterol of 9.5 millimoles per litre. Now, every doctor would treat that one with a statin. And the only way you can get your cholesterol to 9.5 millimoles per litre, it's got nothing to do with your diet, it's got everything to do with picking the wrong relatives. So it's all about lousy genetics. There's a condition called familial hypercholesterolemia where it's a disorder of the liver where your liver can't metabolize cholesterol and, and fat properly, so it just spills into your bloodstream. doesn't matter what you eat. Now, if, if you are, you can be as thin as a bean pole and still have a cholesterol of 9.5. If you have that genetic abnormality and you're overweight, your cholesterol might go up to 15. But I'm saying you won't get your cholesterol back to normal by reducing cholesterol and fat in your diet. That is complete and utter nonsense. So this woman comes to see me at age 58 with a cholesterol of 9.5 lifelong because of bad genetics. So, And the problem with this familial hypercholesterolemia, 50% of people will have a vascular event like a heart attack by age 50. But let's be positive, 50% won't. Mm. So what did I do? I sent her downstairs to have a thing called a coronary calcium score. Coronary calcium score is a CT scanner that takes a picture of your arteries. Now, this woman had taken statins before, and every time she went on a statin, she couldn't lift her arms. She had such bad pain in her muscles. So the coronary calcium score in this woman with a lifelong cholesterol, 9.5, came back as zero. She had 
hardly anything in her arteries wow. at all. So I said to her, look, you've tried statins. They make your, your muscles ache, make your life a misery. I don't think you need statins. So for the next eight years, every scaremongering doctor she saw said, if you don't take statins, you're going to die. Rubbish, rubbish, rubbish. She came back to see me at age 66 with a cholesterol of 9.5, sent her downstairs for another coronary calcium score. It had rocketed from zero up to still zero. And I said, look, you clearly don't need statins. So that's one story, giving you one example. But let me go to a, another woman, a 32-year-old woman with a lifelong cholesterol of 12.4 whose father died at 31 of a heart attack. I don't normally do coronary calcium scores on, on young women. I typically do them on males at 50 or females at 60. But in this particular case, because of the father's death at 31, I did do a coronary calcium score. And at age 32, this lady already had a score of 48. Now, zero is what you want. One to 10 is trivial. 10 to 100 is mild. 100 to 400 is moderate. Above 400s, don't read Tolstoy. So 48 is not a big score, but it's a hell of a lot for a 32-year-old. So I'm hammering her cholesterol with a statin because she's going to have some sort of serious vascular event over the next five to 10 years if we don't do it because of her particular case. So what I tend to do with cholesterol is I do what I call a risk assessment. So I have a risk assessment calculator that puts in the coronary calcium score, that puts in the cholesterol, the blood pressure, cigarette smoking, diabetes, family history, and it gives me an estimated 10-year risk assessment. Now, if your risk is below 5%, we consider that very low risk. If it is 5 to 10%, this is 10-year risk now, Marcus, 5 to 10% is considered low risk, 10 to 20% intermediate risk, and above 20% high risk. So if I have people who are below the 10% risk, I wouldn't even think about giving them a statin. So you look at the risk, not the, not the cholesterol. So you might go to a doctor in your 50s, your cholesterol could be 7, the HDL cholesterol could be 2.5, the triglycerides could be 0.5, which I believe is a very healthy profile. Your calcium score is zero. Your cholesterol shouldn't even be thought about. I want people to get this out of their skulls. Cholesterol has no major link to diet. It's just complete nonsense that we've been fed for so many years that the way to treat cholesterol is to go into a, a healthy diet. It's complete rubbish. Your cholesterol goes up for two reasons, lousy genetics and lousy metabolism. So I'll give you a very good example. I saw a fellow yesterday who was about 47, and his cholesterol was moderately high. But you know why? Because he drinks far too much alcohol. So the alcohol is damaging his liver, so he's not metabolizing cholesterol properly. Properly, So that's not genetic, that's environmental, drinking too much grog or, or having a fatty liver, doing something that's damaging your liver, so the liver's not working properly. Now, of course, cutting the alcohol back, preferably out, and eating sensible food will be much better for his overall cholesterol levels, but it's really not the determinant of your cholesterol. So, so cholesterol is really a metabolic and genetic factor that may or may not be putting muck in your arteries. So that's the question. The question is, how much muck do I have not how can I lower my cholesterol doctor. So we've got to get rid of this. Now, can I say to you, mate, every year in Australia, there are 19 million prescriptions written for statin drugs. And I would suggest, and that's, when you wow. say 19 million, it doesn't mean 19 million people. There's 12 scripts per year per person. So just under 2 million people are being prescribed statins by the medical profession in Australia per year. And I'd probably suggest to you, of the 2 million people taking them, probably about 100,000 are necessary. Wow. 
So I is, just think we're over-prescribing over these drugs. That is off the charts. The thing that stands out as you're talking to me is the 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 factor of the coronary calcium test. The question without notice, but you've referenced that a lot more than someone's cholesterol level. For people that are listening to this, I mean, I, know I don't want to ask for general, you know, for specific advice, but on a general level, if someone's concerned, rather than just having their cholesterol tested, surely the coronary calcium test almost sounds like uh, mandatory. No, I, I believe it is. So as I said, as a routine at age 50 for males and 60 for females, I get a coronary calcium score. But just say, Marcus, you're, you're a young fellow. You don't need to be about 35. I'm 37 so, these so, days, yep. Yeah. So, so you, you come to me and you say at 37, um, look, my dad had a heart attack at 65. Would I do a calcium score on you? Absolutely not. But if you said my dad had a heart attack at 40, then I would do it. So, yes. so the, the family history certainly shifts the goalposts. But I, I've seen, and I think this is close to medical negligence. I saw a, a woman once who was 25 and her father had had a heart attack at 50. The GP had already put her on, on a statin oh. in a high dose at age 25. Now, let me tell you another story. I saw a 35-year-old man who was on 40 milligrams of Lipitor, the most commonly prescribed drug in the world. And I said, what are you taking this for? He said, because i got a high cholesterol. I said, yeah, what are you taking this for? And there was no reason he needed this Lipitor at his age with no family history, just because his cholesterol high. Ridiculous in a 35-year-old. But then he went on to tell me, Marcus, that his wife had been through three unsuccessful cycles of IVF. And I said, well, it's the damn Lipitor pulverizing your sperm. So he went off the, the Lipitor. Within six months, she gets pregnant naturally. Oh. Now, I'm sorry, my friend, but putting a woman through the misery of failed IVF I mean, physically it's hard enough, but what it does to your emotions is bad enough as well for something that that shouldn't have been started in the first place in your husband. It's absolutely ridiculous. So I think we're throwing around these drugs like lolly water mm. with not great evidence. And, and look, here's the problem. When you look at all the trials that, that show that statins reduce cardiovascular disease, which they do, these are trials that are typically done in overweight Americans. So you take Americans, not always Americans, it's been done in Europe and Australia as well, but people typically with poor lifestyles and um, with, with the poor lifestyles, then they give half of them a statin and half of them a placebo and then they, then they show that there's about a 20% reduction. There's never been any trials of statin drugs done on people who practice the five keys of being healthy. Now, let me go through those five keys for you because that's more important. So statin drugs in average dose reduce your, your risk for a heart attack by about 20 to 30% if you've got a bad lifestyle. But if you practice the five keys of being healthy, I'll go through them quickly. You can't be healthy and have any addiction. So anyone who smokes is sick. Anyone who drinks too much grog is sick. Anyone who snorts cocaine is sick. So no addictions. Number two, good quality sleep. Having seven to eight hours of good quality sleep every night is as good for your body as not smoking. Number three is nutrition. And, and Marcus, nutrition is easy. There's been so much nonsense put out about nutrition over the mm. years, but nutrition is easy. It's called eat less and eat more naturally. That's all you need to know about nutrition. Number four is what I call the second best drug on the planet, three to five hours every week of moderate exercise. And number five is definitely the best drug on the planet. It's a thing called happiness. Nice. Now, if you do those five things as well as you can, you reduce your risk for cardiovascular disease by 83%. There has never been a trial on statins adding statins to people with a healthy lifestyle. It just hasn't been done. So 
all the work on statin therapy be, has been done on people who are at very high risk, who have very poor lifestyles, showing a weak benefit. There's no work showing that adding statins to a healthy person is going to make them live longer or make them any better. Now, you're not going to give yourself a plug, but I will. For people that want to know more about this, you must read Dr. Ross Walker's Five Stages of Health book, Debunk the Myths and Get the Facts of Good Health. It is a must read. All right, Dr. Ross, uh, people are listening to this going, but I'm on statins. I'm on statins and I don't know what to do. So what for people that are listening and they want to take some action, we're obviously going to say, well, I'm going to say, uh, you must visit your local GoVita store for personalized advice on what the best um, products available at GoVita are for you. But what do people actually, what do you recommend people do that are on statins listening to this right now? Well, firstly, the first thing I'd say is look at your age, look at your risk factors. What is your cholesterol? What is your blood pressure? Have you ever smoked? Are you diabetic? Who in the family's had heart disease? And if you're at the age group I've said, what's your coronary calcium score? And if you've been deemed when all of these things are put into a risk factor calculator, and, and let me tell, tell people, you, you can get this on the internet. This is not something the doctors own. If you go to MESA, which is the MESA risk calculator, you can put all your parameters into this, all the things I've just said, and find out what your risk is. And as I said, if it's above 10%, I agree with statin therapy. But if it's below 10%, there's no way you need to go anywhere near a damn statin. It just does my head in the medical profession's overemphasis on drugs as the key to good health, as opposed to the five keys that I was talking about before. So the first thing is find out where you are now, but also, I've got to say responsibly, you should not be making these decisions without a discussion with a responsible doctor who, whom you trust, who is giving you good advice. So don't ever make a medical decision by yourself. I have a cup uh, in my office where I drink my tea from in the morning, Marcus, and it says, please do not confuse your Google search with my medical degree. So, so it's, it's important that people realise that, that it's, you, you need a good advisor who's going to give you good information. So Sorry. that's the first thing. But, don't, but also the other thing I'd say to people, don't see the God as doctor, uh, so the doctor as God. You know, the time that uh, God tried to play doctor, he said to Moses, take these two tablets and see me in the morning. But what, what, I'm, what I'm saying is don't see a doctor as a God. The doctor is not the, the supreme authority on everything. Always question. And, and, if, and people should listen to their gut feeling, their instinct about what they're being asked. Because as I said, there are so many things you can do, proactively do for your own health before you have to start hitting the pills. It's fabulous to hear you talk about this. So have the conversation. Go to the uh, MESA risk calculator. Now, what about the difference between water-soluble and fat-soluble statins? Can you educate the listeners yep. on the key difference? That's a great. That's a terrific question. Now, I only prescribe water-soluble statins for people who are at high risk. So the only people in my view who need a statin are people who've either had a heart attack, stent, or a bypass. I give all of them statins if they can tolerate it. And it's my clinical experience that probably less than around 10% of people can tolerate statins. Sorry, can't tolerate statins. So there are a lot of people who just can't take them. It's not the end of the world. Look after yourself. It's much more important. So when I do prescribe a statin to the people who have proven heart disease or a high coronary calcium score. So if your coronary calcium score is above 100, that's when I start to use statins as well, unless you're much younger with a, low, with a high coronary calcium score, like the 32-year-old lady I mentioned before. So the only statins I use are Resuvastatin, otherwise known as Crestor, or Pravastatin, otherwise known as Pravacol. I personally do not prescribe Atorvastatin, which is Lipitor, or Simvastatin, which is um, Zocor, because they are fat-soluble. Mm. 
mm-hmm. Crestor and Pravacol, Reservastatin, Pravastatin, and Water Soluble. Now, what's the difference? Now, here's the key. The, in a healthy cell, the membrane, the covering of the cell, is 75% fat. So we need a fatty covering in our cells to protect us from outside toxins. That's why low-fat diets are nonsense. Because you go on, if you don't get good fats into your system, you're not getting a good protection of those membranes. So if I then give you a fat-soluble statin, I'm ripping the cholesterol out of your uh, out of the the cell walls, and it's my view that the fat-soluble statins cause more side effects than the water-soluble statins do. But here's the problem: Crestor is the strongest statin, so five to ten milligrams of Reservastatin is the same as ten to twenty milligrams of of Atorvastatin or Lipitor. Uh, 20 to 40 milligrams of, of Zocor Simvastatin and 40 to 80 milligrams of, of Pravastatin, the weaker statin. So you've got to look at the doses as well. So somebody might get uh, bad side effects on 20 milligrams of Lipitor and somebody puts them on to, to 10 milligrams of Crestor, they get the same side effects because it's the same dose. So you've got to also look at the dose that you're on as well. And a lot of people don't understand this. It's very complex stuff. So well, it's not when you break it down just to the two, water-soluble over yeah. fat-soluble and the two that you recommended. Yeah. Um, and I and I recommend only the water soluble statins for people who need them, which are people with existing heart disease or a high coronary calcium score. And I, I ask all your listeners to go to this wonderful website called thennt.com, which is the number needed to treat.com, and look at the statins for people without heart disease. And you'll see there you've got to treat 154 people with a statin for five years to prevent one heart attack in people who don't have heart disease. Oh, wow. That's how little benefit we're getting for this. No oh. lives are saved from being oh. on statins in people without heart disease. Oh, gee, that's a disgusting stat, isn't it? Okay, well, I reckon there's people listening to this going, this is all um, mind-blowing, uh, but selfishly, they have high blood pressure and they want to know what you say about high blood pressure. Now, obviously, there's going to be a lot okay. of people that have both, but one in three Australian men and women, uh, give or take with the averages, have high blood pressure. We're talking 6 million Australians. Um, what about for them, Ross? Because Oh, abs- absolutely. And can I, can I say here, my attitude to high blood pressure is totally different to my attitude to statins. High, see, statins either, uh, sorry, cholesterol either does or doesn't put muck in your arteries, whereas high blood pressure is always bad news, always. So if even with a zero calcium score, if you've got a high, uh, if you've got high blood pressure, and I'll define what that is in a second, you can still pop a hole in your head. It's called a cerebral hemorrhage. You can still thicken the arteries going up to your brain. That's called a stroke. You can still put yourself into atrial fibrillation, put yourself into heart failure, damage your kidneys, damage your eyes. High blood pressure is the major cardiovascular risk factor, and it always needs to be treated. Now, that doesn't mean it always needs pills. So let me go through with you how I approach high blood pressure. 90% of high blood pressure is due to your genes in this environment. So there's no underlying cause per se, apart from lousy genes and a lousy environment. So when you've got those 90% of people, the first thing I always do is try and bring in lifestyle change. And there are, again, five keys to managing high blood pressure as far as your lifestyle goes. Number one, get rid of your belly fat. So the more belly fat you have, the worse your blood pressure is. Number two, have that three to five hours every week of moderate exercise. Number three is get rid of sugar and salt. And one thing that really drives me nuts, Marcus, is when you hear people talk about Celtic sea salt or Himalayan salt, 
as if it has some magic properties over table salt. It's the same damn stuff. <laughs> it still puts up your blood pressure. So, so get salt out of your diet. Now, I'm not saying no one should have salt, but I'm saying people who are predisposed to high blood pressure or have high blood pressure should keep their salt down. Num number four is to get rid of grog because alcohol in more than one or two glasses per day, and look, having a, a couple of glasses of wine per day is just being civilised. And my definition of an alcoholic is someone who drinks more than their doctor. Mm -hmm. So so having that one or two glasses a day is, is of no harm to you whatsoever if you can stop at that. But once you start having three or four or five consistently, that drives up your blood pressure. And number five, the big killer for high blood pressure is stress. So the more stress you're under, the, the higher your blood pressure. So they're the five lifestyle things you can do. There are three natural things you can do for your blood pressure. Kyolic aged garlic extract, two capsules in the morning has been shown to have pretty much a similar effect as a standard pharmaceutical pill. And also a bergamot polyphenolic fraction. It's got to be the 47% extract from Calabria. One of those twice a day certainly helps drop your blood pressure. And also two small pieces of high-potency dark chocolate every day oh. helps the blood pressure. Most people like that one. Now, the final thing before we get onto pills is a thing called sleep apnea. Now, Marcus, even a young fellow like you have it, has it. I have it. Why? Because we're males. All males have a degree of sleep apnea. All postmenopausal females have a degree of sleep apnea. And if you've got really big league sleep apnea, that can put your blood pressure through the roof. Now, after that, it's medications. And I have no problems at all with blood pressure pills. Blood pressure pills have been safe. They've been around for 30 years with no nasty surprises. You don't have patients coming in complaining of all the side effects that many people get from statins. So uh, blood pressure pills are very important. It's vitally important to control your blood pressure. Now, what is blood pressure? Blood pressure is where when the doctor checks it, they give you two readings, the top one and the bottom one. And we, we like it really, people say less than 140 or 90, but I really aim to get the blood pressure down to 120 over 80. And there's a study called the SPRINT trial where they took 9,000 people over three years in the US. They targeted half to 140 or 90, the other half to 120 on 80. Those who got down to 120 on 80 compared to the 140 on 90s had a 30% reduction in heart attack, stroke, sudden death and heart failure just by getting their blood pressure down to 120 and 80. So I don't care what you do to get your blood pressure down as long as you get it down to those levels. And again, to be frank with you, mate, when people come to my office, I'm not that interested in their blood pressure. I'll always take it, but I'm more interested in what they get on their own machine at home because that's their natural environment, not yeah. an environment in a doctor's office. So people talk about white coat hypertension. Anyone who's been to my office will know that I don't wear a white coat, so that doesn't work. But it's just stress-induced hypertension. So if you're under stress all the time, it may put your blood pressure up. Mm. And so, so I say to people, don't check your blood pressure at 10 o'clock on a Sunday morning. Check it. Take, take the machine into work. Check it in between clients or in between patients or whatever you're doing. Just check it and see what it's doing when you're under the pump. Because if, your blood, if you're working, say, 30, 40, 50 hours a week and your blood pressure is at 160 or 100 when you're working and it might drop to 120 or 80 at nighttime or on the weekends – you're still getting too much blood pressure. Mm. So get your blood pressure controlled. It's a vitally important risk factor for cardiovascular disease. And over the age of 60, it's 10 times more in, important than cholesterol as a risk factor for heart disease. Oh, I love the practical steps that you're giving here, Ross. Uh, belly fat, 
three to five hours of movement, sugar and salt, no matter how what, how it's marketed, alcohol, stress. But like you said, you and I are both fans of the, the Greek island blue zone of Ikaria uh, where they're renowned oh, yes. for their uh, wine uh, consumption. And like you say, one or two glasses a day is something that no one has to be afraid of It's uh, if it goes beyond that uh, three, four, five uh, a day. So that is fantastic insights. I'd love to ask you, you mentioned um, – you mentioned uh, bergamot and particularly that it must come uh, from Calabria. You were educating me beforehand that um, extracts aren't extracts. Um, can no. you just take this a little bit further? Because, again, on the Go Vita podcast, it's very easy that people could walk into anywhere and not know exactly like, not know exactly what to buy and what to look for. So can you just – and I know there's also some other, um, I suppose, powerful natural ingredients that, that we need to talk about, but can you just um, back over uh, the bergamot? Because I just was writing it down here, 47% Calabria. Is that, that's what I wrote mm. down. So can you just yes. educate on what people, when they walk into their GoVita store, how do they know that they're getting the right one? Well, let me just backtrack for a second. What we're talking about is the juice – of these particular citrus fruits, which are sort of halfway between a lemon and an orange, that are grown endemically along the southern ionic strip of Calabria. Now, I am an honorary Calabrian citizen because of my services to the bergamot fruit. <laughs> and it's, I, it's true. And in, in bergamot, you have a, a number, but five very strong polyphenols, plant chemicals, that have a, a vast array of metabolic effects. One of the major things it does is activate a thing called AMP kinase, which is the master metabolic switch, but also the, the, the bergamot polyphenolic fraction at the 47% extract from Calabria, not from anywhere else. What this stuff does is work on the same pathways that statins do without actually blocking HMG-CoA reductase, but modulating the enzyme so you still get a benefit on cholesterol. So we didn't sort of mention this when we were talking about cholesterol, but everyone has heard this nonsense that LDL is bad and HDL is good. You've heard that for the yeah, good and bad yeah. cholesterol. Well, it's wrong. L LDL and HDL are divided into small bits and large bits. And here's where size is important. The larger your LDL, the larger your HDL, the better it is for you. And what the bergamot does is shift you from the small bits to the large bits. So it's my view that everybody over the age of 50 should be taking one bergamot tablet, the one that I said, the Calabrian one, one twice a day, for the rest of their days, everyone over the age of 50. Anyone who's on a statin should be taking it. Now, we published a, a study in the International Journal of Cardiology where we gave people 20 milligrams of resuvastatin. It's a big dose. We got their LDL cholesterol down 56.5%, and then we cut it in half to 10 and added the bergamot polyphenolic fraction twice a day. We got their LDL down 52.5%, but a bigger rise in HDL and a much bigger drop in triglycerides which is consistent with shifting someone from small LDL to large LDL. So, for example, I mentioned before you might have a cholesterol of 7 and HDL of 2.5, triglycerides of 0.6. That, that is a cholesterol profile of somebody who's got a lot of large LDL and large HDL. Your cholesterol might be 4.5, your triglycerides might be 2, and your HDL might be 1. You think, oh, it's better than the person with 7. No, no, no. That's all small LDL, and that's bad for you. So that, that's where that happens. So... I use the, the bergamot for that, for as I said, for everyone over the age of 50 to keep their, their arteries healthy, their metabolism healthy. I, I use it in people on statins so they don't have to use as big a dose of statin. I also use it purely to, to reduce the risk for diabetes. We have published data in all of this, reducing diabetes, fatty liver, 
It improves the microcirculation to the brain, and we know what disease we're talking about there. And also a, a study from the University of Exeter, so not our lab in Italy, showed that the bergamot extract from Italy suppresses cancer stem cells. All right. So, Ross, this is great. I've got four other, and I love that you're pointing to research here because in this natural uh, perspective, I think uh, well-researched, um, uh, proven nutrients is so vital. So we've gone into bergamot. Let's talk about curcumin because I would say this is more of the new up-and-comer when it comes to well-researched, uh, proven nutrients. Can you educate us on how curcumin is really powerful for great heart health? Yeah, you see, one of the keys here, everyone talks about cholesterol and blood pressure, but over the last 10, 15 years, there's also been this focus on inflammation. And and that's the key because, you see, the the reason we get atherosclerosis or the buildup of fat and other muck in the walls of the arteries is that these modern diseases are due to something that shouldn't be there in the first place. So our immune system was only geared for trauma and infection. So as you know, we're only designed to wander around a jungle for 30, 40 years with a spear. That was our our physiology 10,000 years ago. So our life's changed dramatically, but our physiology hasn't changed much. So people are now living double their use-by date. So our use-by date's about 40. So people are now living into their 80s. And so what's happening is things are breaking down. And we weren't designed to have constant nutrition. We were designed to kill the beast, eat it straight away, store a bit of fat in the belly, until the next big feed, uh, maybe one or two days later. But what do we do? Breakfast, lunch, dinner, and sit in our bums all day. So what happens is the fat has has only got three choices. Mm -hmm. It's metabolized properly by the liver and the other organs, or it spills into your arteries, or it spills into your gut, i.e. your fatty, fatty belly, or the fat belly. And so therefore, when the fat goes into the wall of the arteries, the immune system sends these soldiers called macrophages to follow in to get rid of the fat. So the macrophages jump into the wall of the artery, start chewing on the fat. But like human beings, the fat tastes good for the macrophages. So what happens to the fat, the, the, the macrophages? They get fat. So they become what we call foam cells, and they get fatter and fatter and fatter and then rupture into the wall. So more macrophages come in, do the same thing. It becomes a vicious circle of fat and inflammation, fat and inflammation. So inflammation is really the immune system gone wrong because it's overworking to get rid of stuff that shouldn't be there in the first place. So supplements like curcumin and krill, what they work as very good anti-inflammatories that damp down that inflammatory response. So certainly we don't want the fat, the, the fat and the other muck there, but we don't want the inflammatory cells building up because they just become part of the pro- problem. It becomes a bit like a corrupt policeman. So the policeman's there to try and fix up the problems, but then they become part of the issue. So we, d- we need to suppress inflammation with, with things like curcumin and krill. That's fabulous. And there's two more that I'd love to get your insights on before we finish up, ubiquinol and magnesium. I'll let you choose the order in which you tackle these okay. ones. Okay. Well, well, we start with – see, I see ubiquinol and magnesium orotate, and I'll explain why orotate in a second, as blood brothers. They work together. Now, we've all heard of coenzyme Q10. So coenzyme Q10 is one of the major drivers of the mitochondria. So for people who don't know what a mitochondria is, I'm sure most of our uh, people listening do know what the mitochondria oh, is. Oh, no, no, no. Um, it's not as simple as it sounds. I think it's okay. important to to define uh, what a mito- right. what mitochondria is and, and well, what role. The best analogy I can make here is it doesn't matter what sort of car you drive, you need a fuel supplier if Mr. Shorten uh, has his way, we'll have electric cars, but we'll still need a battery or something to supply the cars so the cars are working. 
So if you don't have that fuel supply or that energy supply, your car doesn't do a thing. Now, in the same way in our cells, we have an energy supply called the mitochondria that creates this chemical called ATP, which is our major unit of energy. Now, one of the major drivers of ATP metabolism is coenzyme Q10, but it's coenzyme Q10 in its active form, ubiquinol, not ubiquinone, which is the standard CoQ10. So what happens, it's okay for a young and like you, Marcus, but when you get to about 50, this enzyme called diaphorase, which converts ubiquinone to ubiquinol, starts to drop off. So we don't get a lot of active ubiquinol or CoQ10 in our, in our mitochondria. So I, I take, because I'm certainly over the age of 50, even though strangely I don't look at um, <laughs> yeah, in my dreams. I love so it. I, I take ubiquinol every day purely to give me energy. Statin drugs deplete CoQ10 in the mitochondria. So I give ubiquinol to all my patients on statins. People with significant heart failure, I give big doses of ubiquinol to treat their heart failure. So I do that. But here's, here's the key. Magnesium orotate, it's the orotate that lifts up the CoQ10. So it, it enhances the amount of ubiquinol that's present in the mitochondria. So you get the benefits from a good magnesium anyhow, because we know magnesium is good for all our cellular reactions. But with the orotate, you get that extra bang for your buck by lifting up the, the CoQ10 in, in the mitochondria. So I tend to use ubiquinol and magnesium orotate together. So you see, all the things we've just spoken about are really enhance the five keys of being healthy. And if you've got heart disease, they will improve your heart disease as well as, as your good medical management. Uh, I have visions of holding my almost three-year-old son above my head, Ross, and I am the magnesium orotate and he's a ubiquinol and he's very happy he's feeling tall mighty and strong uh and that have i read that correctly that that is what yeah. magnesium is doing is lifting up the ubiquinol to make yeah. it as uh as bioavailable in the body as it and, can be and and finally we can't go without talking about vitamin k2 because what vitamin k2 does and this is very simple but very very elegant it takes the calcium out of your arteries because as you get more fat and inflammatory muck in the arteries, the body throws in calcium, but the arteries then become too hard. That's what atherosclerosis is. Sclerosis means hardening of the arteries. So to make your arteries more flexible, you need to get some vitamin K2 that's going to take the calcium out of the arteries and put it back in the bones where it belongs. And the dose of that is 180 micrograms or one capsule a day and that's the key dose with an evidence base. There's a thing called the Rotterdam Heart Study where they did a three-year study of vitamin K2 and found that A, it improved arterial flexibility and B, improved bone strength. Oh, Ross, I could keep on asking you questions. It is a joy to be uh, speaking with you and to be able to learn so much from you. I can't thank you enough for educating us on this edition of the Go Vita podcast. Anytime you like, my friend. Thank you to all of you listeners. There has been so much in here. We've got a lot of this in the show notes. I'm going to put links into the nnt.com, to the MESA risk call, to Dr. Ross Walker's Five Stages to Great Health. Make sure you get a copy of Dr. Ross's latest book. And again, how lucky we are to have Dr. Ross Walker on this edition of the podcast. Now, don't keep podcasts a secret. Make sure you share the podcast with your friends. Show them how to listen to a podcast. Open up a whole new world for them. Subscribe them to the podcast using the podcast's app 
on your respective smartphone. Please spread the love by leaving a review in iTunes and make sure you head on over to govita.com.au where you can check out the latest Go Magazine. Make sure you check out Dr. Ross Walker's article in the upcoming edition of the Go Mag. That is Go Vita's quarterly magazine with recipes, tips, special offers, and a whole lot more. And remember, when next you're doing your shopping, make sure you do so in one of the Go Vita stores around Australia because at Go Vita, your vitality is our passion. Bye for now. This has been a production of thewellnesscouch.com. Check us out on Facebook and join in the conversation on facebook.com forward slash thewellnesscouch. Subscribe to each show on iTunes and check us out on Twitter. The Wellness Couch, streaming wellness into your lives. Whilst the Wellness Couch presenter endeavor to provide accurate and helpful information to their listeners, these podcasts cannot take into account individual circumstances and are not intended to be a substitute for health and medical advice from a qualified health professional. You should always seek the advice of a qualified health professional before acting on any of the information provided by any of the Wellness Couch podcasts.